It's five past ten, ABC Classic FM. Shakespeare's words eulogised England, this precious stone set in a silver sea, in that immortal speech in Richard II, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. Well, today is St George's Day, so it's England we'll be talking about with our guest, Dr Carol Cusack, who lectures in religious studies at the University of Sydney. She has an honours degree in English language and literature. She's a historian who specialises in ancient and medieval England. Well, with these interests, religious studies and English history, I want to explore a bit about England in past times and find out about the rise of paganism in modern England and other parts of the world too. The very word conjures images of witches dancing in the moonlight at Stonehenge. Carol Cusack is our guest, and for today's interview, she settled on English music, some splendid English music, starting with the Tallis Scholars singing Bird.
Gloria from the Mass for Five Voices by Bird, William Bird's music, sung by the Talus Scholars, conducted by Peter Phillips and chosen by our guest today, Dr Carol Cusack. Good morning. Morning, Margaret. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me why you chose that. Well, because this is the program for St George's Day, it made me think of religious connotations, English religious connotations, and the Gloria... The part of the Gloria in any Mass is a particularly interesting one in that it is a, a paean of praise extolling God. It orients human experience towards God and towards the praise of God as the appropriate activity for human beings. Now, your discussion or questioning of neo-paganism is an interesting one, uh, but the past of England is firmly Christian. And this orientation, particularly for my period of history, which basically peters out, I'm afraid, around the year 1500, I'm not much of a modernist, uh, this orientation of human society towards God, the praise of God, is fundamental. Mm. St George, do we know much about him? I mean, how long has he been the patron saint of England? Oh, a good long time. The thing about St George that's interesting is that he's not a native saint, and when medieval European countries were selecting regions or even cities, selecting those saints that would be their patrons, there's always, I think, a slight favouring or tendency towards the local. So we have St Thomas Becket in Canterbury, uh, we have St Genevieve the, uh, of Paris, the patron saint of Paris, but St George is an import, Middle Eastern import, Syrian, uh, but he fits the English spirit for medieval England at least, in his role as a, a martial saint, dragon slayer, portrayed as he is astride a horse, rearing with his spear about to puncture the dragon, personification of the devil. Would he be seen at the time that he was selected as being um, an appropriate image? I mean. I'm wondering what people generally in the street would have thought of St George as their patron saint. Would they have thought this was a jolly good thing to have him? It's a very interesting question. Religion operates on a number of different levels, of course, and the level of the political and the ideological is more important, perhaps, for those who are ruling a country. When you ask about what the person in the street thinks, um, that's another viewpoint entirely. It seems to me that St George is a wonderful image of sainthood, a wonderful patron for the medieval aristocrat whose training is in knighthood, in arms, and who sees himself predominantly in those terms. You quoted John of Gaunt's speech. He was a great noble a great warrior and his son who was to become Henry the fourth Henry Bolingbroke was even greater you know carving out a career not just in England but with the Teutonic Knights in Eastern Europe you know sort of seeing himself almost exclusively in terms of martial progress and so for the aristocratic aristocratic perspective for the ideological perspective St George is a wonderful patron for mm. the medieval knight and his cross is the red cross on the on this on the Union Jack yes Yes, but for the person in the street, he's also appropriate because the fact that he identifies with um, an aristocratic ideology doesn't negate his possibilities as a popular saint either because he's triumphant, he's a protector, he's a figure that people might feel that they could take refuge in. He can defend them. Mm.
which makes him important. And whereas today we might think it's all just part of pageantry and part of the, you know, the, the stuff of legend, it obviously had greater meaning day by day for people in bygone years. Oh, the saints lived for yes. the people in yeah. medieval Europe. I know it's impossible in the time available to give a potted history of England, and I'm not going to ask you to do that. But if we look at England and think, I mean, what little I know of, of history, and your knowledge is vast by comparison, but it strikes me it's been a little island, tiny island. I mean, absolutely, those words of Shakespeare really ring, don't they? They really... They sum it up. Oh, yes. they sure do. Waves of invading forces over the eons of time, going way, way, way back. The English people that now call themselves English, what's their ethnicity? Have we got any idea where they come from? I mean, are they a, a bit of the North Northerners, a bit of the Continentals, a bit of this and that and the other? It's a question that historians always dread. The other question that they always dread is, but who was there before mm. when we get to the point of the earliest possible settlers being known? Ethnic distinctions, I think, are something that are a very vexed question in history because mostly people define themselves in terms of the use of two things, language and material culture. And that's why it's possible to have, say, an international culture nowadays yeah. that incorporates people of vastly different ethnicities, lifestyles, religions, because shared language and shared media and shared cultural institutions kind of unite us. In the past, that was true too. People perhaps were more defensive of their identity there's very much a, an us and a them uh, picture that you find in the ancient world, the early medieval world. But the English are a mixture of, of everyone and everything, and their culture shows the influence of the Celts, of the Scandinavians, of the Anglo-Saxons, of migrant groups, and we don't just think of 20th century migra migration of Indian and African people, but thinking back to the Huguenot refugees from France, people from Spain, mm. people from all over the place fed into that uh, cultural mix. Yeah, and identified by the na the surnames in the country. Yes. You can see traces of Huguenot in some and you can say tr see traces of Scandinavians in others, can't and you? Normans. And yeah. Yes, there are, there are names that are distinctively um, hearkening to that heritage. And so it seems to me that in some ways the land which Shakespeare refers to is the key issue. Why were there so many people wanting to invade this tiny island, as you say? Um, it was never rich, really, in mineral resources. Remember the ancient world, the early medieval world, the mineral resources they were interested in were precious stones and gold and silver. England and Ireland had some of those things, but not all. They were remote also. When we think about the centrality of European culture, it's always been either Mediterranean-oriented or if we go back, say, to the period of Celtic dominance in around about, say, 800 to 500 BC, it's Central European, Eastern European, the great Celtic settlements are in Austria and moving towards Switzerland. And so England has always been on the periphery, mm. but nonetheless highly desirable, highly attractive. In more recent centuries, its isolation has been its advantage, hasn't it? 
Well, indeed, it was even in the past as well. And that's another thing that's very interesting when you look at the history. The Romans, when they came to England, um, the conquest was part of the advancement of empire, greater territories. The province, Britannia, was another jewel in their crown, to use a later metaphor. But the way that they responded to this country is very interesting. And in some of the southern Roman settlements, I'm thinking particularly of Fishbourne, a lovely Roman villa that's near Chichester, there are letters preserved where poor soldiers say, oh, can't I go back to Tuscany? It's so wet, it's so grim, it's so awful. And a mere... You know, 700 years later, when the Vikings arrived, they thought they'd found paradise because the frosty wastelands of northern Norway were so different. And so we see different perspectives on England. What's desirable about it changes for the migrating groups. They're not all looking for the same thing. And the language is as rich as the cultural diversity, because of its diverse, diverse origins, I guess. Hugely hybrid. Incredibly. Yes. Just one question before we hear more music. How far back do we have to go in time, in terms of language, before what was being spoken on the streets would be incomprehensible? Not very far. Um, I think that the average 20th century English speaker would have grave difficulties even with Chaucerian English, which, and remember, Gaunt is Chaucer's patron, it's 14th century, whereas Sir Thomas Mallory who wrote Le Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, only a century later, in the 15th century, his language is quite comprehensible. So in a hundred years it changed quite dramatically? Oh yes. In fact there have been radical changes, sometimes quite short periods of time English has, has taken on a totally different complexion. What, what causes it to change? What are, the, what are the catalysts of change? Well, language lives. Just think of the incredible change rendered by the Norman Conquest and the huge absorption of French terms, mm. which just gave not only a, a great word stock to English, but also different formations, grammatical formations and, and stylistic <sighs> formations. English is a living thing, it really is. Carol, let's hear some more music, and you have chosen all English music, and I, I don't know how difficult it was to make your final selection. I, I figure it must have been difficult. Oh, very. In fact, I asked for a limitation, uh, and I thought English music is a good limitation because there's a lot of it, but I can still... I could draw in from music I loved, mm. music from anywhere. Who stands head and shoulders above the other English composers, in your opinion? Who is the greatest mm. English composer? My Well, my favourite, my personal choice, is Benjamin Britten, but I wonder whether that's not just because his idiom is much closer to me culturally. He's a 20th century composer. I understand him. Well, we'll hear Britten a bit later, but we're going back further than Britten for the next piece, which is John Dowland. What oh. have you chosen? The song Gro- Go Crystal Tears. Um, it's one of those songs that is exquisitely beautiful, exquisitely melancholy and yet the sensation it creates when you listen to it is a sensation of pleasure not pain
Go Crystal Tears by Darland. The countertenor was Andrew Dalton and Yasunori Inamura played the lute, chosen by our guest today, Carol Cusack. That's lovely. It, it contrasts beautifully with The Bird, which was religious music, and that's secular love Indeed. song. Yes. Is there any pattern just that you can tell us about the choice of music? Because Britain's coming up next, then some Elgar, then some Vaughan Williams. Yes, well, I did try to open up different areas of English culture and history and of course the bird begins with the church and Christianity. One of the other great obsessions of Western culture and the English no less than any other is love, romantic love and it's one of the most influential inheritances from the Middle Ages so the Dowland is a love song because England after all has great love stories to tell, not just the fictional kind that come from the pen of Shakespeare, but after all, the queen of the courts of love, Eleanor of Aquitaine, was herself the queen of England for many years. So there's a theme there, I think, for history and for culture. The Elgar from the sea pictures, that's nature. It's the ocean which surrounds, after all, the Isle of Britain, oh. and it's about the environment of Britain. and. The Benjamin Britten is a setting, I chose a setting, of Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Splendour Falls, which is about castles. Mm. And of course, Britain is a heritage country filled with sites that people love to go and see, beautiful cathedrals, magnificent castles. So, yes, I um, suppose... And Vaughan Williams will, will wrap it up, and I think that's because it's just something you absolutely love. But yes. we'll hear the Britten and the Elgar and the Vaughan Williams shortly. But, Carol, I'd like to... Um, zero in, if we may, on the area that you know most about, and that's medieval England. Can we have a day in the life of a medieval Englishman, an an Englishman in medieval times? Can can we choose a year or a a decade or a century that that would suit you? Well, let's take the 14th century. Do you want the day of an ordinary person, a merchant in London. Yeah, that'll do. Okay. If we think about somebody like Geoffrey Chaucer, born the child of mercantile, middle-class people in London, he was customs and excise officer. So even though he was a poet and had connections with the court and with grander levels of society, he had quite a pedestrian element of life as well. In the Middle Ages, cities were much smaller than they are now. London was one of the grand cities of Europe, one of the most populous, the most wealthy, the most cultured cities of Europe, but it still wasn't very big. With mostly wooden buildings? Yes, definitely, wooden buildings, crowded streets, open sewers, crowds of people everywhere. Dogs and cats and horses. Animals, mm. yes. Palaces, the palaces of the very wealthy along the banks of the Thames. Um, Some of those, of course, have not survived nowadays. The Baynard's Castle, where Richard III used to stay, demolished. Um, John of Gaunt's own palace, demolished, burnt during the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, our period. We have descriptions of the city, so we know the kind of life that people led. 
people went to work. Medieval people didn't usually eat breakfast. It was for fe the feeble, for children and students perhaps got a breakfast. The first meal of the day is about 11. Ale, meat, bread, cheeses, solid foods, lots of protein. Chaucer would have been at work writing over his ledgers. Writing, written culture, is very different depending on which part of the society you're in. For the church it's Latin always, but by this time the mercantile classes are mostly writing either in English or in Anglo-Norman, which is a version of French. Um, it's much more easily comprehensible people can cope with it. Nonetheless, mercantile ledgers aren't easy to read. They're a form of shorthand, they're very complex, very detailed. Customs and excise deal with material coming in and out of London, principally trade, things like the wool trade, the staple, which traded principally with the Low Countries, Belgium and Holland. So he's writing away, he's checking materials, charging taxes, customs and excise. The workday varies in length, it depends particularly on the seasons. Remember we're in a land, a world lit only by fire. So the winter working day is very short. The summer working day is long and arduous. And this is reflected in rates of, rates of pay. People are paid much more in for their summer, summer working day mm. because they do a lot more. In a general sense, is he likely to be a man or somebody like him? likely to be someone who we talked about love and the importance of love will have a girlfriend um, will go out with girls a bit during adolescence and then choose a wife and marry and settle down happily well actually you've opened a beautiful avenue there because Chaucer and love is a very prosperous topic he married a woman called Philippa de Roet who was from the Low Countries um, she had a sister called Catherine Chaucer's patron as many aspiring young men who wanted to get on in the world, particularly if they had literary or art artistic talent like Chaucer did, had to have a patron, was John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster himself. John of Gaunt had three wives and quite a, an involved romantic life. Was that okay, regarded oh, multiple marriages? With... Yes, multiple marriages were okay, not simultaneously. No. That would have been a problem for the yeah. church. But his first wife, the Lady Blanche, whom he actually got the Duchy of Lancaster from. It was her inheritance. Um, Chaucer's first really successful poem, called The Book of the Duchess, was written on the occasion of Blanche of Lancaster's death. And it's a dream vision poem where a figure falls asleep and he meets a knight in black, a man in black, who is the John of Gaunt figure. He expresses his mourning for the lost lady. It's the romantic theme we've had already in the music. And the it's essentially a form, in some ways, of psychotherapy. The poem progresses as the knight explains his grief, and what the lady was to him. And then the resolution at the end, the dreamer wakes up and he says, well, this is the story, and he tells it. And nowadays, people think that these books were written for private circulation around the court circles, and they were like a public declaration of grief, but an intending also to go on with life. Some people have argued that Chaucer must have been in love with the Lady Blanche himself. He's expressed her virtues so beautifully. But of course, poetry is convention, and perhaps it was merely a job. But of course, what really is the Chaucer and love story is that uh, his sister-in-law, Catherine, his wife Philippa's sister, Catherine Swinford, as she's usually known because she married a minor noble called Swinford, became Gaunt's mistress. 
and his final, the wife of his last years. And this is a great love story because medieval men of high degree couldn't marry people of low status, people who brought them no diplomatic advantage, no property, no money. Mm. And so this long affair with Catherine Swinford and his eventual marriage of her uh, is when Gaunt's duties essentially dynastically are over and he's able to gratify his own love. And many people have suggested that Chaucer's heroine, Cressida, in his Troilus and Cressida, the same story that Shakespeare tells in the play, uh, his heroine of romance is based on his beautiful and uh, and um, famous sister, mm. sister-in-law, Catherine. Just one more question. In those days, what? How old were you when you went to work? Did I mean? Did children work? I presume oh, they yes. did. Yes. Yes. Um, there are different medieval texts about age. Some of them say that you're an infant till you're seven. Then between seven and thirteen, you're a child, and then at thirteen, really effectively, you're an adult. Um, the rich often married in early adolescence. Middle class married in late teens around the age of 20. The very poor often married in their late 20s because they're trying to limit the amount of fertility that they've got. If you Mm. only marry when you're 29 or 30, you've only got perhaps 10 years. But you also only have a short childhood no matter who you are. Oh, anywhere, yes. The poor children, they're out in the fields scaring the birds and collecting stones, you know, at six or seven. Mm. Well... It's a fascinating story and there's so much to tell. Let's let's hear some 20th century music and this is your, your number one composer, I think, Benjamin Britten. That's what right. is it that you've chosen? I've chosen a setting of an Alfred Lord Tennyson poem. It's a short poem called The Splendour Falls and it is a picture, I suppose, of a historic site. It starts, The splendour falls on castle walls and snowy summits old in story. I suppose that's history, old stories. And it's Peter Pears singing, um, wonderfully evocative. The refrain of the poem goes, blow, bugle, blow, and set the wild echoes flying. And it's part of a suite of music um, for voice and um, brass. Oh, <laughs> 
Nocturne, The Splendour Falls on Castle Walls from the Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings by Benjamin Britten, Sir Peter Piers and Barry Tuckwall with Strings of the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by the composer and the line in there about Elfland, the horns of Elfland faintly blowing um, makes me want to ask you, Carol Cusack, about magic. I suppose I'm thinking in terms of neo-paganism, which I was talking about in the introduction, because I know that you have a, a special interest in this with your religious studies connections. How, how um, vigorous is neo-paganism? How, how many people are interested in this? That's a really interesting question. Um, it's very hard to specify in some ways because the people who feel an affinity and I, I, pref I don't like the term neo-paganism a lot. For a lot of people, paganism's got a negative feel. Mm. Um, and neo-paganism implies something kind of artificially constructed. I think that the best way of describing it is perhaps an affinity for the old religions. And I put it in plural because, of course, England, Britain has Celtic roots, Scandinavian roots, Germanic roots in the Anglo-Saxons. And so there's a lot of mythological inheritance. Of, of, it's a land peopled by gods and goddesses, holy wells, sacred springs, ritual sites like Stonehenge, which still fascinate people. So in terms of those people who feel an affinity with the old gods, um, it is on the rise. It's a strong theme in 20th century religion. The recovery of the goddess, the recovery of a kind of spirituality in particular which people see as being not so obviously censorious, especially of the body, of sexuality, of pleasures that mm. come from those aspects of life. Um, 
In terms of numbers, I'd have really no idea. I'd say that we know at least there are 10,000 such people who are willing to admit such an affiliation in Australia because there's in a Australia, registered church. That's interesting because I always think in terms, and I don't know how many people listening think this too, think pagan equals witches equals sort of satanic rituals and things like that. No? No. Um, <laughs> she screwed up her nose and shook her head and said no. <laughs> well, Satan is the big problem for me. Witchcraft, yes, maybe. But to talk about Satanism, Satan's actually an element of the Christian narrative. He belongs as the opponent, opponent, the adversary of the Christian God, the tempter of Jesus in the wilderness, you know, this sort of thing. And Satanism, such as it is, I mean, I don't deny that it does exist, but I think it's a very minor strand and always has been historically, is specifically an opposing force to the Christian mythos. So Satan belongs in the Christian mythology not mythology the christian story yeah yeah so christian, he has he's no, on the christian playing field <laughs> he has no no place on the playing field of the pagans then no because he didn't exist in in the the, the pantheons of the old celtic yeah. or the scandinavian gods no he's he's not there tell us about stonehenge because it attracts millions of visitors per year and on the longest night of the year everybody goes there and the druids dance around and all of that now it's a most extraordinary place, is it not? I mean, it, just um, an amazing place. Do they know how it got there, how those monolithic rocks got there? Well, Stonehenge is part of a culture that was quite widespread in Europe at the time, which is known as the megalithic culture. Megalithic, big rocks, it's, mm. it's very simple. And it's not the only big rock set in England either no. or in Britain, is no. it? No. Well, my favourite stone circle in England is Avebury, not very far from Stonehenge, and perhaps not quite so immediately impressive, but much less, shall we say, overrun by tourism and marketing. It's and a those bit like Ayers Rock and the Olgas, maybe. Yeah. I find the Olgas infinitely mysterious and Ayers Rock, well, it's wonderful, but it's a sort of similar thing, isn't it? Yes, I think so, because one's been really thoroughly appropriated. Stonehenge, the giant's dance, as it was called in the past, picturesquely by antiquarians in the 16th century. It's wonderful and remarkable. It's had things done to it, of course. Um, antiquarians tried to stand up fallen over stones and to sort of reorganise it. It seems to definitely have some astronomical significances. It's lined up with astronomical formations. The idea that it's a ritual site, we can say that very easily. What else is such a construction for? It implies, interestingly, a united population because huge numbers of people would have been needed to produce the complex. The Wiltshire Plain is just a centre of megalithic culture religious sites, not just Stonehenge and Avebury. There's a wooden circle called Woodhenge. There's Windmill Hill, which is a very large settlement, and there's... Uh, Silbury Hill, which is just near Avebury, and the West Kennet Long Barrow, one of those enormous chambered tombs. So it's very clear that somewhere between, say, 3000 and 1500, Stonehenge in different stages dates from different points. I think our standing stones there, the Sarsons that are there now, are basically from about 2000 uh, BC. It was an area of great religious activity. Unfortunately, we can't really recover what the religion of these mm. people was. Mm. There are no texts. And I'm are... sure people are going to ring and say, hey, there are other stones around the place. I know there are some in Scotland. In fact, I think that there's a, 
a golf course built around some stones. I mean, only the Scots, the birthplace of golf and all of that, but they build a, a golf course with oh, the stones indeed. in the middle of it and you've got a tee up over, over the top of the stones or around them. I think it would be a challenge for the, uh, the <laughs> ambitious, Woods, ambitious golfer, yes. <laughs> Oh dear. Let's let's go on to more music. I was I must say I was um charmed by the thoughts of the late Kit Denton, who died last week and, and I know that he said to his son Andrew Denton shortly before he died that there were not five but seven human senses. There were the five that we know about and then there was humour and there was music, which I think is a lovely thought. The the swimmer is who wrote the poem The Swimmer that Elgar set. Oh, Adam Lindsay Gordon, actually. So. so there's an Australian connection. Yes, there is. Though I must say that I probably didn't pick it for that. Yeah. I'm very interested in the way that language and music can be brought together, and poetry is a wonderful medium. But I think that it's losing its appeal for a lot of people. To read poetry nowadays is something that requires quite a lot of effort. And I know that even I don't read it easily. And I was trained in the habit in my undergraduate degree in English literature, so I think perhaps I read it a bit more easily than some. Mm. To set it to music, to make it a song, is a kind of accessibility that is far greater. It opens the, the poem to many more people.
The Swimmer, uh, a poem by Adam Lindsay Gordon. The music by Elgar from Sea Pictures, Dame Janet Baker, chosen by our guest today, Carol Cusack. Carol, tell us something about yourself. How did you set off on this train of interest in history and religious studies particularly? Oh, I was brought up in a Catholic family. Religion, I think, was quite an important part of my life. I discovered medieval history accidentally almost through visiting St Mary's Cathedral with my mother on our shopping excursions into the city before I was going to school. And I just thought it was wonderful, the most beautiful building I'd ever seen in my life. And it is actually a very fine piece of neo-Gothic, but it took me a while to connect it with the fact that it was a copy of a culture from hundreds of years ago. I loved reading as a child. I read a lot of historical novels and all of the general people who introduced people to stories like Robin Hood and King Arthur, Roger Lancelin Green, um, Ro- Rosemary Sutcliffe, Barbara Leone Picard. They were authors I loved mm. when I was a child. So books were obviously important, books and reading. Immensely, yes, immensely. And music, I suppose. I learned music at school and I was aware through my Catholic education and my family background, which is strongly Irish, of 
the traditions of that particular culture. I learned Irish dancing at school. Did you? Know? you? Like yes. the river dance people with all that amazing I was never that knee, good. knee work. Um, <laughs> Is, is there a time in history that you would prefer to have been born in rather than now? No. No, I'm very pragmatic, I'm afraid. Uh, I wouldn't have minded being Pope at some point, but I certainly would have had to have been a man. And if I were to be me, preserve the integrity that I think I have as a person, then it would have to be now because I could never have done the things that I have done. Mm. Uh, there are women, of course, I admire greatly like? from the medieval period who really did do things. Abbess Hildegard von Bingen, a bit of a cliche nowadays, but she was remarkable. Um, the German playwright, little known, Roswit von Gandersheim, a nun who wrote wonderful plays uh, in imitation in some sense or taking off from Terence, the Roman dramatist. Eleanor of Aquitaine, whom I mentioned earlier, as well as being the queen of the courts of love, a fabulous administrator and politician, very shrewd and able. Mm. Christine de Pizan, the late 14th, early 15th century French poet. Well, she's Italian by birth, of Pisa. What are you reading at the moment? What's on your bedside table? What's on my bedside table at the moment? Um, Rereading Peter Ackroyd's English music, which I was doing for this program in a way to put myself into the mood for it. And reading uh, Antonia White's Frost in May. Are you? Yes. And what was the film that you've enjoyed most in the last 12 months? In the last 12 months? The film of Twelfth Night, which I know was rather light-hearted in some ways and, and marketed as a romp, but I thought the performances were extraordinary and Imogen Stubbs was the best viola I've ever seen. Really? Not cocksure, not assured, but perpetually tentative about being a man when she isn't one and stumbling often but still making a great triumph of it. Great film. It's been great to see you on this St George's Day. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. I often think me. I wish I knew as much as my guests, and again I do, <laughs> with all that knowledge of medieval England. It's fantastic. And your final choice, which we'll only have time for a tiny bit of, is the Vaughan Williams that you chose. Yes, the Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. It's wonderful, just quintessentially English, I think. <laughs>